Welcome to the Revelation Church podcast. We trust today's message will speak to you. If you'd like to get in touch, just drop us an email at hello at revelationchurch.org.uk. Good morning, Revelation Church. We're going to be looking at Joshua chapter 1, verses 1 to 9 this morning. I think it's fair to say that we live in a success-driven world, don't we? Many people would love to be successful and prosperous, but how do you achieve success and prosperity? There's plenty of advice online, of course. Here's one example of someone's five keys to success. First of all, you've got to believe in yourself. Have confidence. Like yourself. Feel good about yourself. Take pride in what you do. Secondly, focus with a positive attitude. Always expect the best possible outcome for what you do. Your thoughts are like magnets. You attract what you think. Thirdly, set powerful goals. Give your brain a place to aim. Set goals so that you can reach them. When you do, reach a little higher. Fourth, persevere. Never quit. Never give up. Keep going. Keep trying. And lastly, number five, maintain a healthy mind, body and spirit. Take care of yourself through a healthy diet, exercise and say no to drugs. Well, you can find numerous other examples online of keys to success. They're all very similar and they all sound very noble and sensible. But at the heart of them is me. Believe in yourself. Take care of yourself. Feel good about yourself. Now, it's beneficial for us to have a good level of self-respect, but being self-absorbed isn't the key to being successful if you're a believer. So you're following Jesus. You've given your life to him. What does success and prosperity look like for you? Um, and should it even be a thing for a Christian? Should it be something we're aiming for as believers? How do you ensure that you do have success and prosperity? Well, this Bible passage in Joshua gives us some good insight into how to be successful and prosper prosperous in God's kingdom. So let's read Joshua chapter 1, 1 to 9. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now then you and all these people get ready to cross the river Jordan into the land I am about to give them, to the Israelites. I will give you every place where you set your foot, as I promised Moses. Your territory will extend from the desert to Lebanon and from the great river, the Euphrates, all the Hittite country, to the Mediterranean Sea in the west. No one will be able to stand against you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Be strong and courageous, because you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore to their ancestors to give them. Be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, that you may be successful wherever you go. Keep this book of the law always on your lips. Meditate on it day and night, 
so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. Well, there are the magic words in verse 8. You will be prosperous and successful. God is promising Joshua success and prosperity, but of course there are conditions attached. He needs to meditate on the book of the law day and night and to be careful to obey what he reads and then he'll enjoy success and prosperity. So God's keys to success and prosperity are very different from the world's, aren't they? Nothing about believing in yourself, nothing about being determined or focused or setting goals or um, having a positive attitude. Just meditating on the book of the law and obeying it. Success in a worldly sense has been defined by the Cambridge Dictionary like this. It says the achieving of results wanted or hoped for. And prosperity has been defined in this way. The state of being successful and having a lot of money. But when we compare the worldly definitions of success and prosperity with God's definition, we should see some big differences. Surely Christians aren't looking to pursue the kind of success and prosperity that the world frequently fo focuses on. Um, things like money, fame, materialism, career advancement, holidays, expensive homes, good looks, all those sorts of things. But actually there is a temptation to do exactly that. In some sections of the church, prosperity and success are clear goals to be celebrated and promoted in themselves. I remember going with a friend to a large church in South London some years ago. He worked with a lady who was one of his colleagues who attended the church and she, she said, you must come along sometime. So we went along one Sunday morning and the worship was very lively and it was very faith building. Um, but as the meeting went on, it became apparent that there was a lot of focus on material and financial success. A lot of the members had big cars, expensive cars parked in the road outside. And some of the testimonies ran along the lines of, you know, when I came to this country, I was broke, I was penniless. Now I've got my own business. I own my own home. I have a car. That kind of testimony. Great testimonies. And we left feeling a bit of a mixture of faith and encouragement, but also a bit wary of the emphasis that there seemed to be on material prosperity. This so-called prosperity theology has infiltrated many churches and has become conflated with the idea of the, the American dream. Uh, the idea, the belief that anyone, regardless of where they were born or what class they were born into, can attain success in today's world. Now, that's not necessarily a bad thing, of course, but it isn't the gospel. Prosperity theology has been criticised rightly by leaders from various Christian denominations, including Pentecostal leaders and charismatic leaders. They argue that it's irresponsible, it promotes idolatry and is contrary to scripture. And clearly Jesus himself didn't pursue wealth and prosperity in that sense. He had very little in terms of possessions and money. So we must be aware of misinterpreting Joshua 1 verse 8. 
Success and prosperity aren't particularly associated with health and wealth here in this setting. I mean, those things could be spin-offs, but they're not what the Bible has in mind here in this verse. What it does focus on is meditation, meditating on the book of the law. So what exactly does that word meditate mean here in Joshua chapter 1? The definition of meditation in the Bible is generally to mutter or to speak quietly. The Hebrew word used here in Joshua 1 means to murmur, to ponder, imagine, mutter, speak, study. This is what the beginning of verse 8 refers to. Keep this book of the law always on your lips. You see, whereas we tend to read silently and we just sort of hear the words in our heads, in ancient Jewish culture, the followers of God would meditate on the word by speaking it out loud. And they would speak it out to themselves over and over and over. They would dwell on the scripture. So Joshua not only knew the word of God, but it was always on his lips. He spoke it over to himself again and again, so it was embedded into his heart. So the words of God wouldn't depart from him day and night because he was meditating on them and he was speaking them out all the time. Christian meditation is the act of filling someone's mind or our minds with scripture and dwelling on God as we sort of mutter, speak, ponder the words of scripture to ourselves. Now this produces knowledge of the Bible of course but it also helps to ongoingly transform our hearts. We start to act according to biblical principles, we start to think in a biblical way and the whole thing becomes second nature to us because it's inside us. It's been said if you know how to worry then you know how to meditate. Worry is when you take a negative idea and you continue to think on it over and over and usually it starts to affect you in a negative way and you begin to behave in a negative way. When you take a truth from scripture and think about it over and over in a similar way, we call that meditation and the outcome is very different. There are many Christians who can't really do everything that's commanded in the Bible because they don't necessarily know what's written in the Bible. So it's important for us to get to know the whole Bible, to be in the habit of reading it, but also studying it diligently so that we can understand it and obey it. We need to be saturated in the Word of God so that it exerts an influence on our thoughts and our actions. So maybe sometimes it's better to read a little and ponder a lot rather than read a lot and ponder a little. When I was in my mid-twenties I was introduced to a method of Bible study which we called Bible meditation and at the time I was working for a church in Wimbledon I was doing an assistant pastor role and my pastor, Norman Moss, used to gather a group of local leaders together, uh, church pastors and ministers, and we would do Bible meditation together. He called the group the Cave of Adullam, after the band of desperados that David gathered around him when he was on the run from Saul. And I think he, he was quite amused by the idea that this respectable group of ministers were like David's bandits. 
Um, but essentially, the, this particular type of Bible meditation involved reading through a short passage of scripture, um, praying together um, to ask the Holy Spirit to come and open it up to us. And then we would spend maybe 15 or even 20 minutes silently meditating on the passage. And we get our notebooks out and we would get our pens out and we would flick around in our Bibles uh, to other verses that we were reminded of and we would make notes. And at the end of the 15 or 20 minutes, we'd, we would share our thoughts and our ideas and the things that we felt God had said to us. And there were two main questions we were encouraged to ask. The first one was, what does the Bible say? And the second one, what does it say to me? So it always amazed me at all the many different insights we had as a group, um, very rich insights into the same short passage. We'd all tackled it from different angles and God spoke to us through all our different ideas and thoughts. So having learned this way of meditating in my 20s, I've periodically gathered groups of people together to do Bible meditation and I've always come away with a new perspective on the passage we've been looking at, uh, a new understanding of the Word of God. And I honestly think that this is one of the best ways of uh, growing in discipleship, to, to learn how to meditate on the Bible. Uh, in my last church, I had a young group of leaders that we, we used to meet together regularly to do Bible meditation uh, early in the morning. And we worked our way through Genesis and Exodus and also Mark's Gospel. And I know that for those guys that there was some real learning going on and understanding of what God required of us as a result. I think this is a good opportunity to introduce the idea of the discovery Bible study method, which the GCs are going to start using after Easter. Um, the D discovery Bible study method um, it's been widely used and very successfully used around the world in recent years. And it has many similarities to the Bible meditation I've done over, over the many years. But it's proving to be one of the best ways of studying the Bible because it's simple. It requires no preparation. It uses the same questions every time. Questions such as this. What do we learn about God? What do we learn about people? How can we obey and who can we tell? I don't really need to go into more details now, but I just wanted to let you know that we're going to give this method a go. And in many ways, it will help us to learn how to meditate on the Bible, especially if you've never done that before. And the great thing about this is that as a church, we'll all be on the same journey. We'll be meditating on the same scriptures throughout the term. When we meet together in other settings, we'll have a common uh, set of reference points and we'll be able to focus on the same promises from God. When the Israelites were in the wilderness they journeyed together, they, they didn't split up and go in different directions. So I want to encourage us to do the same, let's stay on the journey together and not just do our own thing. So Joshua 1, 1 to 9 was a really key moment in Joshua's life. He was about to take on this enormous responsibility of leading God's people into the promised land. And uh, obviously Moses was a difficult act to follow and uh, Joshua must have felt somewhat nervous about uh, picking up this leadership role. I'm sure he was a very capable leader, but if he was going to be successful, 
he needed to meditate on and absorb God's word so that it became second nature to him. And we would do really well to follow his example. In verses 3, 4 and 5, God made some extraordinary promises to him. He said, I will give you every place where you set your foot, as I promised Moses. Your territory will extend from the desert to Lebanon and from the great river, the Euphrates, all the Hittite country to the Mediterranean Sea in the west. No one will be able to stand against you all the days of your life. Can you imagine having a promise like that from God? No one will be able to stand against you. Amazing. Well, after Easter, our next sermon series will follow Joshua's success as he and the Israelites gradually got established in the promised land. And we'll follow that through with the Discovery Bible studies as well. So I just want to finish by quoting the great preacher Charles Spurgeon. And he said this, Joshua was especially exalted to continue in the path of obedience. He was the captain, but there was a great commander-in-chief who gave him his marching orders. Joshua was not left to his own fallible judgment or fickle fancy, but he was to do according to all that was written in the book of the law. So it is with us who are believers. We are not under the law, but under grace. You know, you can live a successful life in worldly terms, but living a successful life before God means looking to the commander-in-chief. And that commander-in-chief is Jesus. He died on the cross so that our sins could be forgiven, and he made it possible for us to come into relationship with God. And if you want to be truly successful, you need to build your life on the foundation of fully trusting in Jesus. And that is the only foundation that we need to build on. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you so much for this wonderful text in Joshua chapter 1. What great promises were given to Joshua, but there was that condition of absorbing the Bible, absorbing the word of God and obeying it. Uh, and as he did that, the promises were fulfilled. Lord, I want to pray that you would help us as a people, uh, as your people, to do the same, to understand the Bible, to read it, to meditate on it, to absorb it, to allow it to become second nature to us so that we too might be successful and prosperous in, in, in a God's kingdom kind of way. Uh, Lord, we may not be successful or prosperous in a worldly sense, but Lord, we want to be successful in what you call us to do and to be. And so, Lord, thank you for this challenge. Thank you that you enable us and help us as we meditate on your words. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you open up um, new truths to us all the time. And I pray, Lord, that as we do this more, you would help us to be successful in all that you're leading us into. We ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen.